0: I next met with Dr. John Leonard to discuss ASCO papers on NHL and CLL and a couple other presentations just a few weeks later at the European Hematology Association meeting in Lugano. But to begin, Dr. Leonard commented on an ASCO paper on mantle cell
1: lymphoma. This was a very small study presented by the group at the NCI where they used the dose-adjusted EPOC-R platform, which people are familiar with. It's being looked at in the upfront setting in large cell lymphoma in a large randomized trial going on. This looked at EPOC-R, the dose-adjusted EPOC-R, as a platform for kind of building upon and adding new therapeutics in mantle cell lymphoma. What they did here was add bortezomib to the dose-adjusted EPOC-R, and then they randomized patients to observation or maintenance bortezomib. And the net of this study was that the dose-adjusted EPOC-R had a PFS, somewhere around two and a half years or so. So reasonable, perhaps a little bit better than you'd expect with something like RCHOP, chop but not a home run. And the question of whether or not bortizumab added anything, I think, was debatable. I mean, this was not a dramatic PFS over what was expected. The PFS at 36 months was about 47%. And then they had a small second step of the study where they randomized patients to observation versus bortizumab maintenance, There were only 11 patients. The total number of patients in the study was somewhere in the ballpark of 38 patients or so. So it was not a huge study. And so at the end of the day, they had a small number of patients randomized to maintenance bortezomib versus observation and really no difference. So they concluded that bortezomib did not seem to add a great deal to the dose-adjusted EPOC-R regimen. I think that this is really a small study It's an interesting observation. I don't think you can definitively answer this. And I think you can rule out a major effect of bortezomib in this particular regimen. On the other hand, you would obviously need a larger study to look for a smaller effect. Whether or not bortezomib adds to chemotherapy in mantle cell lymphoma, as you know, we've looked at it with RCHOP and seen some modest effects, the bendamustine-based regimen will be looked at in a large randomized trial that we just mentioned with or without vortezomib BR induction. And so I think that will be what's needed to more definitively answer this sort of issue.
0: Let's talk about T-cell lymphoma a little bit, beginning with Steve Horowitz's paper on
1: romadepsin and peripheral T-cell lymphoma. So romadepsin is a drug that has been approved for CTCL, now approved for PTCL, it's a histone deacetylase inhibitor. It's given intravenously basically a four-hour infusion, days 1, 8, 15, every 28 days. So I'm sure many people listening have not yet used it, but I think it's a useful new agent for peripheral T-cell lymphomas as well as cutaneous T-cell lymphomas. It has a response rate in the range of about 30% in patients with relapsed and refractory PTCL. What this paper did was basically report on the population of patients that have CRs or CRUs, which in this series of 130 patients had a 13% CR rate. And the bottom line of this was that there was a substantial fraction of those patients that could have durable remissions. The median duration of remission had not been reached in the CRCRU patients. The longest was out uh, 26 months. And so I think the net of this paper was that Obviously, everyone doesn't respond. It's a minority of patients that do respond. But if you do get the patient into a CR, these are patients who actually in many cases can have fairly durable responses. And I've had one or two of those patients on the clinical trials we participated in as well fall into this category. Like most things, the issue is, you know, who is that patient? And can you predict who's going to have the very durable response? And On the other hand, we don't have a really clear prognostic index to say who's going to respond to this drug versus other things. But there are patients who have fairly resistant disease in every subtype where there have been complete responses observed in some patients.
0: So let's talk a little bit about CLL. And oncologists are starting to hear about Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitors Cal-101 is another one that we're hearing about. And there was this paper by Dr. Bird on the BTK inhibitor, BCI-32765.
1: Right. So I think one of the most exciting new developments in the last year or two in lymphoma really relates to the concept of drugs that are kinase inhibitors, that are basically inhibiting kinases that are crucial in B-cell-related signaling pathways. And... If you remember your kind of B-cell physiology, every B-cell has a B-cell receptor where it is designed to interact with antigens as B-cells fulfill their physiologic function. And so signaling through the B-cell receptor is an important part of B-cell physiology. It's important in B-cell malignancies and keeping those cells, being happy, keeping them alive, making them resistant to treatment. And this goes all the way back to the vaccine therapies where vaccine treatments that were looked at going back over 20 years ago with idiotype specific antibodies and vaccines really were directed toward the B cell receptor. The idiotype is part of the B cell receptor on the cell. And so there are several compounds that are inhibitors of kinases that are downstream from the B-cell receptor. And they range from sick, and the audience may remember the sick drug that was presented at the ash plenary session, the sick inhibitor a couple of years ago. Then we have Bruton's tyrosine kinase, which is another kinase in that pathway, also known as BTK. And then downstream there, we also have the PI3 kinase And we have PI3 kinase inhibitors. And so it's fascinating that all three of these kinases are targets that can have drugs directed against them and have activity both in CLL and other B cell malignancies. It's also interesting in that in CLL, drugs that target these kinases all have a transient increase in the white count and a reduction in lymph node size. So that's a pattern that in all three of the kinase inhibitors that go after this pathway that when you treat CLL patients, the white count will transiently go up, but the lymph nodes will rapidly shrink, which is also just an interesting link of these kinases in this physiologic process. So what was reported at ASCO relates to the Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitor, or BTK inhibitor. It's got a name, PCI-32765. So this is an oral agent that inhibits Bruton's tyrosine kinase. And this is a drug that's also active in other B-cell malignancies, including follicular lymphoma and mantle cell lymphoma. This drug, in previously treated patients, including patients that have adverse cytogenetics for CLL, results in the vast majority of patients a marked reduction in lymph node size somewhere in the ballpark of 80 to 90 percent of patients have a significant reduction in their lymph node size however they transiently have an increase in their lymphocyte count in the majority of patients it's a well-tolerated drug there's less issue with cytopenias the main issue as far as toxicities with this drug relate to things like GI toxicity nausea diarrhea and stomach upset and so This is a category of drug, and the PCI-32765, I think, is a very promising new drug that has a very high response rate in CLL patients, including those with things like 17p deletion. Again, more effective against the lymph nodes and less as far as the cell counts themselves. And I think this is a very exciting, well-tolerated drug, particularly given the fact that so many of our CLL treatments are drugs that cause cytopenias and cause infections or predisposed to infections, and here we have a drug that doesn't seem to do that in a major way.
0: Now, there's another paper I wanted to ask you about in looking at lenalidomide following rituximab
1: and fludarabine in CLL. So as the audience knows, lenalidomide is an active drug in various B-cell malignancies, including follicular lymphoma, and mantle cell lymphoma, large cell lymphoma. What was reported at ASCO was a small study. It comes out of the group at Georgetown where they use the combination of fludarabine and rituximab, which has a high overall response rate. However, obviously patients relapse. So it combined fludarabine rituximab with a lenalidomide maintenance. The other advantage of potentially doing it this way is that, as the audience may know, lenalidomide can cause a flare reaction when the patient has active adenopathy. And so by using it as a maintenance when the patient's in remission, one would assume that you're going to see less of that flare sort of reaction. And so in this study, it was a small study about 21 patients, a few of which had adverse prognostic features. They received standard FR and then went on to receive lenalidomide as a maintenance therapy. The study is ongoing, but the bottom line is that this seems to be a well-tolerated regimen. The main toxicities that we're seeing is basically what you would expect with FR alone, and then what you would expect with lenalidomide, things like cytopenias and rash. But I think this is a very exciting approach. It's being looked at prospectively in a CLGB randomized trial at this point. And obviously, you'd need a randomized study to say, you know, what does lenalidomide add to FR? How does this compare with other things? But I think this makes a lot of sense when you have a well-tolerated oral agent using it as a maintenance treatment in CLL would be a line of investigation that makes a lot of sense.
0: And the CALGB as well as other groups have been reporting positive results with lenalidomide maintenance and myeloma. What's the trial design that they're looking at in terms of CLL?
1: The CLL approach has been looking at FCR as well as the FR followed by lenalidomide approach that's being looked at here. And I think the concept is to try to look at this more in a randomized fashion to see are are there differences and are there particular molecular subtypes where there's a difference in response with one regimen versus the other.
0: What about the Phase two study that was reported of chlorambucil and rituximab followed by maintenance versus observation in
1: older patients with CLL? Well, I think the concept of chlorambucil and CLL is something that people occasionally use, particularly in very elderly patients. Certainly when fludarabine came along, it largely replaced, and fludarabine-based regimens largely replaced chlorambucil, but there's still certain parts of the world and certain patients where giving chlorambucil makes sense. I almost look at this as the analogy of the melphalan prednisone kind of base regimens in myeloma where people are using MPT or MPV with bortezomib. This almost reminds me of that in that it's saying, can we use the old standby that's been around for so long plus rituximab. And you know, this basically shows which is not surprising given that chlorambacil in some ways is not all that different than cyclophosphamide and cyclophosphamide containing regimens is that the response rate is quite high with this sort of combination. I'm not quite sure why you would, you know, to me, the main use of chlorambucil is if a patient doesn't want to get injections or just doesn't psychologically want to deal with injections or the convenience of going back and forth. So I'm not quite sure why you would use chlorambucil rituximab versus something else substituting for chlorambucil. If the patient was coming in for rituximab, you could give him an injection of, you know, whether it's bendamustine or cyclophosphamide or something else. But I think this is an interesting approach that in some settings might be useful, particularly in patients where you wanted to give them you know, relatively less intensive treatment might be something that here and there would get some use.
0: Let's talk a little bit about diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. What about the paper 8001
1: presented by Dr. Stiff looking at the SWOG study? So this presentation was a long-awaited North American intergroup study comparing CHOP or R-CHOP. They switched over partway through the study for eight cycles versus R-CHOP or CHOP for six cycles, followed by auto transplant and first remission. So it's basically asking the question Does auto transplant and first remission improve outcome for patients with higher risk diffuse large cell lymphoma? So by the IPI, this took high intermediate and high IPI patients, so basically patients with IPIs of three, four, and five, and asked the question in a very clear way Does auto transplant and first remission benefit the patient? the net of the study and this was a large study the net of the study was that there's no benefit to auto transplant and first remission this was 370 patients there was a pfs benefit which is not surprising but there was no overall survival benefit. And so if you were to do an auto transplant at first remission, you're gonna be transplanting patients unnecessarily. You're not gonna impact their overall survival. If you don't do the auto transplant at first remission, which is kind of what we standardly don't do in auto and first remission, the patient will have a slightly increased risk of relapse, but the overall survival is the same. And so really you should just go on and do the auto transplant in the patients that relapse in the standard fashion. An interesting feature of this study was that they did some retrospectively performed subgroup analyses. And in the high-risk IPI group of patients, there did appear to be some benefit with respect to overall survival. And so that was very interesting in the discussion at ASCO because it really suggested that perhaps in the high-risk group of patients, there could be an overall survival benefit to doing an auto transplant at first remission. Now, this was really an exploratory analysis. When you get down to the numbers of patients in the study that fell into that category and the number of patients that had chop, because remembering some of the patients were CHOP-treated, which was not the standard approach today, obviously, you get into very, very small numbers of patients. Now, interestingly, Julie Vose, who was the discussant, suggested that she believed that for high-risk patients, transplant in first remission should be a standard of care, meaning that we should at least discuss that with our patients. On the other hand, Pat Stiff, who was the presenter of the study, did not go that far. And I think statistically doing these sorts of retrospective analyses on subgroups on small numbers of patients is not quite as robust. And so there was a little bit of controversy at the meeting about the fact that, again, this retrospectively defined high-risk group of patients might have benefited with respect to overall survival with the auto transplant. But that really wasn't the intention of the study. And if you look at the primary endpoints of the study, it really comes up as a negative thing in that autotransplant and first remission should not be the general approach for high intermediate and high risk patients. So interesting little twist there at the meeting.
0: So let's finish out with a couple papers from ASCO that address one of the most common questions we get about diffuse large B cell, which is what's beyond RCHOP. One paper I wanted to ask you about looked at combining lenalidomide with RCHOP, a phase 1-2 study.
1: This was a small study out of the Mayo Clinic or led by the Mayo Clinic group. And what they did was basically take lenalidomide, which as the audience knows is active in follicular lymphoma, CLL, mantle cell lymphoma, and large cell lymphoma, and basically add it to RCHOP as part of initial therapy for aggressive lymphoma. Now you would think, gee, lenalidomide causes myelosuppression, RCHOP causes myelosuppression, it's gonna be difficult to add them together. But kind of to my surprise, actually, when they did the phase one and then extended it to a phase two, they were able to go up to 25 milligrams, basically, of lenalidomide in combination with standard dose R-CHOP on a 21-day cycle. And so what they did was and defined their MTD lenalidomide 25 milligrams day one through 10 every cycle of rchop 21 this was well tolerated it was really something that they're now going on to evaluate in a phase two analysis obviously we would need a randomized trial to see if there's a benefit to adding lenalidomide to rchop but the fact you can do it i think is a step forward in this sort of strategy
0: so I have to also get a second take from you on the EHA meeting that was just held in Lugano. Seems like there wasn't that much there beyond ASCO, but there were two papers that did seem important. First, the quality life presentation from the UK looking at watch and wait versus rituximab. Can
1: you review this? One of the main questions, obviously, for a newly diagnosed patient with follicular lymphoma who's asymptomatic and has non-bulky disease is whether or not watch and wait is appropriate. I know that the audience knows very well that there have been some randomized trials comparing watch and wait to chlorambucil, really not showing a major benefit. And so Ardeshna and colleagues, really multiple groups largely out of the UK, did a randomized trial of watch and wait versus rituximab four doses versus rituximab four doses plus two years of maintenance in asymptomatic patients with non-bulky follicular lymphoma. And the net of this study and the primary endpoint of this study, which was updated at Lugano, relates to quality of life, although other endpoints included time to initiation of new therapy and other kind of standard things with regard to progression-free and overall survival. So this was a big study. Basically, they had in the ballpark of about 400 patients went on the study. And there are several kind of standard outcomes of the study related to the fact that the people on the watch and wait arm went about two and a half years before they needed any therapy on average median. So I think that's a good benchmark that if people in practice are watching and waiting with a patient, the average patient goes somewhere in the ballpark of about two and a half years. Patients who got treated with four doses of rituximab, which was an arm that was abbreviated given the adoption of maintenance, so only about 80 patients went on that arm, versus patients were treated with four doses of rituximab weekly, and then as a maintenance for two years, followed by maintenance. And in that group of patients, the vast majority of patients, the response rates were over 80%. And when you look at the last follow-up, the vast majority of patients remained without needing any further therapy over the three-year point. So if you look at the watch and wait group, about half of patients needed therapy in three years. If you look at the rituximab with maintenance, 90% of people had not gone on to their next therapy. And so from the standpoint of time to initiation of new therapy, patients did very well from that standpoint. And I think one of the main conclusions of the authors, which was presented at ASH and updated at ASCO, was that the time to next therapy is improved if you start off with rituximab right away versus watch and wait. Now, that's kind of an unfair comparison because you're really saying the time to the second therapy, if you're starting with immediate rituximab, versus the time to the first therapy if you're starting with watch and wait. And so in my mind, it's a tough analysis from the standpoint of what you really care about is that the fair comparison is the second therapy to the second therapy, which we don't have at this point. Now, the issue of quality of life and so on, I think is a crucial issue for these patients who are asymptomatic. And you could sit here as you deal with your patients in your practice and say, well, patients do better if I treat them right away because they just sit there and watch and worry. You could argue patients benefit from delayed therapy because they're not getting any treatment. And so the quality of life analysis, which was really presented at the Lugano meetings, one of the interesting things was that in every arm of the study, emotional well-being improved. So in other words, a patient diagnosed, whether you watch them or whether you treat them right away, their emotional well-being improved improved over time, no matter what you did with them. So patients kind of get used to the diagnosis of follicular lymphoma. I think the other point that the authors made was that patients who are watch and wait are more likely to worry than patients who are on treatment. They're more worried about the disease becoming more aggressive, the need for more therapy, kind of the control that they have over their situation. And so what the authors concluded, and this was again presented in detail at the Lugano meeting, was that they felt that while quality of life improves and the concerns that patients have about their follicular lymphoma improve with time after the diagnosis, they argued that it improved more if you immediately treated the patient with rituximab. You know, it's interesting you're
0: commenting on the fact that their quality of life improved because I guess if you think about it, most people who are newly diagnosed or totally freaked out and they do not have a good quality of life.
1: Exactly. I think that's a very good point. Now, I would argue that this is not quite a totally fair comparison because it was a randomized trial. So the patients were seen every two months. And so you're comparing somebody being watched and seen every two months versus somebody being treated and seen every two months. And I would say somebody who's been on watch and wait for a year and doing fine, you're probably not going to see them every two months. So you might argue that in real life, their quality of life might be better because that person may be going four or six months before they see you. So it's a flaw of the study that is unavoidable because you have to do it the same way in both arms.
0: Well, I don't know where things are heading, but I do know one thing in terms of patterns of care, which is we're seeing a lot more arm monotherapy and a lot less observation clinically over the last few years.
1: Yeah, you can certainly understand that. And I think that these data will certainly encourage people to pursue that approach in these patients. And as you know, in CLGB, we've been pursuing this kind of rituximab doublets where we're saying, can we improve upon single agent rituximab by adding other things that are perhaps not as toxic and more targeted relative to chemotherapy?
0: One other Lugano data set that I've been hearing about kind of between the lines, so to speak, and I couldn't really get any information, I guess it was embargoed, was the much-discussed issue of our maintenance in mantle
1: cell. I think it's a very interesting point. The role of maintenance, as the audience knows, maintenance clearly has a role in follicular lymphoma, as we've talked about. It has less of a role in aggressive lymphomas, particularly diffuse large cell lymphoma, and really up until now, the literature in mantle cell has been kind of all over the map. There have been a couple of studies that have suggested a benefit, others that have not suggested a benefit. I think it's really not been standard of care to date to treat people with maintenance for Tuximab with mantle cell lymphoma. However, it's such a difficult disease, as you know, that often people add in maintenance just because you know they expect that the patient is not going to do well in the big picture and perhaps maintenance can help. So this was a big study done by the European Mantle Cell Network. And what they did was they took their older group of patients who were not candidates for transplant, and it was really a two-by-two design where patients were treated with either RCHOP or a fludarabine, a rituximab fludarabine-containing combination as an induction therapy. And then they were randomly assigned as a maintenance to either interferon, which we don't very commonly use in the United States, or rituximab maintenance. And to get to the bottom of the study, the first randomization suggested a benefit to RCHOP. So RCHOP better than a fludarabine containing regimen in mantle cell lymphoma. I think people in the US certainly are largely not using fludarabine, at least as upfront therapy these days. The benefits of the study, and I think the most intriguing thing of the study, was that there was a suggestion, a fairly clear suggestion, that progression-free survival was substantially improved if patients received maintenance for Tuximab as opposed to interferon in this particular study. And you could argue that that's essentially placebo or perhaps if marginally benefit, then control being observation. So This study, the majority of patients who got RCHOP and then maintenance rituximab were still in remission. The median PFS was somewhere in the ballpark of about five years, which is substantially better than we expect with rituximab alone. Now, the statistics and the way the group presents their curves, they look at different subsets and things and durations of response and so on. But I thought it was a fairly convincing piece of information that PFS was improved in mantle cell lymphoma by the use of maintenance rituximab. And To the point that the cooperative group study in the United States, which is a bendamustine-based treatment regimen that's going on as upfront therapy in all of the arms of that program includes maintenance rituximab. So I think we are going to see more and more maintenance rituximab use based on these data. Obviously, we'd like to see them published, but I think these were fairly convincing that PFS, not really overall survival, but PFS was improved with mantle cell lymphoma, older patients getting an RCHOP type of regimen.
0: And as you mentioned, I guess the first clue about this came out with that intergroup study trial design, where, as you say, everybody's going to get rituximab maintenance. And I guess the randomization is whether to add lenalidomide.
1: There is lenalidomide. There's also some bortezomib in that study as part of the induction with benamustine. So. Yes, I mean, a number of groups have looked at. Brad called that this modified R-hyper-CVAD regimen where he didn't use the Part B of hyper-CVAD, left out the methotrexate, but included maintenance for tuximab. And that regimen in a small single-arm study looked pretty good. So I think there have been hints of this. And I know that in practice, I'm sure some people have been using maintenance. It's nice to see the data again in mantle cell lymphoma.